But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, about this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac. Though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I love, but Esau I hated. Word of God. Thank you, Ray. Let us pray. Most gracious God, Lord, we come humbly before you this morning in an attempt to study this very difficult passage. Help us to wrestle with it this morning, Father. Let us not just let it flow through our minds and go away, but help us to better understand what can only truly be understood by you. Let us not stop trying. Let us continue to dig in the hopes that we may find gold. And Father, I pray that you give me your words and that it be not mine. And may this whole message this morning bring you glory. For it is in Christ's precious name we pray. Amen. We are continuing, obviously, in Romans 9 this morning. And we are continuing to look at the very same section that we looked at last week. But we're going to move down just the next verse, basically. This particular section can be extremely troubling, or it can be extremely comforting, depending on how you look at it. This section hopefully will cause us to stretch our minds, to exercise our thoughts and the ability to try to grasp the very mind of God. And it gives us this opportunity to see behind the scenes. But I don't want you to be misled into thinking that whenever we get done, you're going to understand this. Because that's not going to be the case. I wrestled with this particular section for 30 years. And sometimes I feel like I'm no further along than what I was when I first started the wrestling. But nonetheless... As I prayed, it's my hope that we not give up, that we don't just set it aside and say it's not worth worrying about, because it is. Because when we can understand it a little bit, it will show us something remarkable about God. It demonstrates His sovereignty, perhaps unlike any other passages in the entire Bible, especially with respect to salvation and how we are saved as a people. But I think we have to continue to keep what we learn about this passage in a tension of sorts. Because the dangers arise when we wander off into the extremes. And that's what we tend to do as human beings. 
We tend to take something and we go to the extreme with it and say, well, that, then it becomes silly. And we think, well, that can't be God or that can't be man. So we have to keep it in tension, as with most things that we see in the Bible. Because whenever we wander into extremes, then we get, find ourselves at a very dangerous point. We looked at this passage last week, or the first part of this passage, and we saw that Paul was presented with a problem. And he realized that problem, and that's what makes Paul such a magnificent teacher as he writes this book of Romans and basically all the letters that he writes. But he sees that there's a problem that he's going to have to deal with. And the problem is this. If God has chosen the Israelites in the Old Testament, and now Paul comes along and says, doesn't matter whether you're a Jew or not, then you've got a large group of people in the Old Testament that are going to get left behind. And so it makes it look like, at first blush, that God is lying, that God wasn't telling the truth in the Old Testament. And Paul had just finished with some wonderful promises of chapter 8, right? That God works all things for our good, those who are called according to his purpose. That no one's going to pass judgment on us. That who can make an accusation against God's elect? He's told us all of these things, but then in, in Paul's mind, he's like, Yes, we have all the promises in eight, but if the Jews are saying God's not being true to his word because he made these promises to Abraham, remember? That the descendants of Abraham would be as many as the sand in the sea and the stars in the sky. And that you're telling us, Paul, that's not the case. So God's lying. God's not faithful to his word. And so that's the inherent problem that Paul's faced with and, and, and what he's dealing with in these passages. I'm not going to spend as much time on these as I did last week, but I wanted to catch us up, even for those who weren't here. And he begins in verse 6. He tells us, God's word's not failed. God's not lying. He's told the truth in the Old Testament, just like he's telling the truth in chapter 8 of Romans here. The problem is our problem, as it always is. The problem is the Israelites' inability to understand the point God was trying to make. That, that's the problem, and that's what Paul wants to point out here. It's a problem of proper understanding, not a problem of the message, because the message was true. Just because people have Abraham's DNA in their body doesn't mean that they are Israelites. And that's exactly what he's saying in verse 6. For not all who descended, the DNA of Abraham, from Israel belong to Israel. Not all of the ethnic Israelites are true Israelites. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. So you remember... How the story went, and I went over it last week. I'm not going to belabor it this week, but I'll try to be quick with it. God appeared to Abraham, said, you're going to be the father of many nations. Your offspring will be as many as the stars in the sky and the sand in the sea. And so he tells Abraham this, and Abraham's 90 years old, and his wife is barren. Sarah cannot have any children. 
And so he's thinking to himself, ah, this can't happen this way, Sarah. We're going to have to do something about it. Okay, I've got Hagar, my maidservant. Sleep with Hagar, you'll have a son, and that's how we'll accomplish what God wants done. But God said, no, it doesn't work that way. He came back and visited Abraham later, and he said, no, 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 not Ishmael. I'm telling you, I want to come back in a year, and you're going to have another son because it's going to be done according to my terms because I am a God that does miracles. And that was the reason I did this to begin with. You took it upon yourself, and you were denying my miraculous power, and you decided that you could do this better than I could, not having it. And so then they ended up, as we know, with Isaac, Abraham, and Sarah. And that was opposed to Ishmael. So we know that Isaac was a child of the promise, and Ishmael was a child of the flesh. So so it is children of the promise through faith that are the true Israelites, not faithless children of the flesh that we saw with Ishmael. So that was the point that, that Paul is trying to make here. And this is the last of that passage telling him that I'll come to you in a year and Sarah is going to have a son. Now he has that scenario that he de- deals with going back to the Old Testament, but he doesn't stop there. We're going to see that he carries out and he goes a step further. And it's, it's beautiful how he does this. He makes a transition from Abraham and Hagar and Isaac and Ishmael to Rebekah and Isaac and their children, Jacob and Esau. We see here in verse 10. And not only this, but there was Rebekah also when she had conceived twins by one man, our father, Isaac. So he's making a transition, and so you have to ask yourself, why does he make this transition? Why does he go from Sarah and Abraham and Hagar and Ishmael and Isaac one generation further to Rebekah and Isaac and Jacob and Esau? And hopefully it's going to become very apparent and very clear to you as we go through this. He's wanting to make absolutely clear that God is sovereign in salvation. It's the point he's wanting to make. And he's not, he, he doesn't want there to be any questions left. And so he amplifies this desire he has of making it clear by using Rebecca and Isaac. Rebecca conceived twins. Twins. Jacob and Esau shared the same womb, the same time. They shared the same father, our father Isaac. And obviously, they shared the same mother. They were identical with respect to DNA. They were one and the same. Paul wanted to make this absolutely clear because there could always be that argument Hagar was a Gentile always could be that argument so you would have those saying yes but Hagar was a Gentile thus Ishmael was a child of the flesh 
but not with respect to Isaac. But he's saying, no, I'm going to take that argument away from you. You're not going to be able to argue that before me because I'm going to give you two kids that are identical in every respect. And that's why he's wanting to make this point. He's wanting to show that it's not a matter of being a Jew or a Gentile. And that God's choice isn't about being a Jew or a Gentile. It's about differentiating between a faithless child of the flesh and a faith-filled child of the promise. That's exactly the point that Paul is wanting to make here. And so he's going to go on even further. They shared the same mom, they shared the same dad, they shared the same womb. For though the twins weren't even born yet, they had not even exited the womb, nor had they done anything good or bad. If you don't see salvation by the grace of God in this passage, you're never going to see it in your life. Can't. Before they did anything good or bad. Prior to them even existing. Why? Tells us. So that God's purpose according to His choice or according to election would stand. Not because of works, but because of Him who calls. You guys have heard me say probably thousands of times, we're not saved by what we do. Because if we're saved by what we do, this guy's going to demand credit whenever he appears before God. Because my pride's going to go in there and say, God, aren't you happy with what I did down here? I deserve what I get up here. This clearly says it doesn't work that way. That's not God's economy. It's not because of works. It's because 100% of God's calling. That's how salvation comes about. So you could come to church all you want expecting to receive salvation, and it ain't going to happen. I want you to understand that. You can do all the wonderful things expecting to gain eternal life, and it's not going to benefit you. Salvation comes by faith that God gives us, and only by that faith. So hopefully you can see that if Paul had stopped after the first illustration, then the argument that this was just meant for the Jews would have had some merit. Because that's still an argument. And there's still a large portion of churches out there that will tell you that this whole scenario is just for the Jews. Can't have that argument whenever you've got two in the same womb as opposed to one mom being a Gentile. It's not the case at all. As a matter of fact, he's trying to differentiate the true Jew as opposed to the Jew according to the flesh or not according to faith. Moreover, I showed you last week or week before last, I can't remember, we're grafted into this, right? We believers are grafted into this Jewish family, the true Israelite family. So the distinction here applies to us as much as it applies to the Jews and the fleshly Jews, the DNA, the ethnic Jews, or the spiritual Jews. So he set this up. You have two sons, same womb, same mom, same dad. Before they've done anything good or bad, 
according to God's choice, the older will serve the younger. He takes it the next step. He wants to make sure that we know and understand that it's not about merit. Esau was the older one. Usually the older son receives the inheritance, right? So they have a better chance at success. Many times you would have the younger son working for the older son because the older son got the inheritance, got everything that dad had. Mm-mm. Wants to make sure we know that doesn't happen here. Guys, it's not about works. Because here we've got the younger son serving, sorry, the older son serving the younger son. It is the opposite of works. He wants to make doubly sure that we know and understand that God's choice wasn't about merit. It wasn't about anything of this world that we could pinpoint or rely on. Verse 13. Just as it was written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. This is where I want to jump in and caution us. And not to take the words that Paul says here to an extreme, right? This is where if we go to the extreme, it's going to lead us to an illogical conclusion. And I want us to be careful not to do that. If Jacob is saved, he is saved by faith. 100%. And if Esau is damned, he is damned because of his sin. 100%. So I hope you all can see the problem in this. And I hope your minds can start to see the issues that are before us. Our final judgment will be based upon what we do with the gospel. Our final judgment by God will be based upon what we do with the gospel and how we respond to it. There will never be one person in hell that will have a legitimate argument to say, I don't deserve this. Never. Not one. We are not sovereign Self-determined, autonomous beings, however. And that's what we have to understand. We don't have the perfect ability to be sovereign. So beneath our belief or disbelief is God's sovereign choice. Underneath that is God's choice and His election. How God's sovereign choice and our accountability work and relate to each other, I don't have a clue. And as I told you, I have wrestled with this for 30 years. And that is way above my ability to think and reason. But I do know, according to this passage, that God sovereignly chooses. And I also know that we are condemned or glorified based upon what we do with the gospel. So there you have both ends. You want to go to either extreme, it's going to lead to illogical conclusions that you'll never be able to make sense of. You just have to keep them in a harmonious tension and know that God chooses 
and we respond to the gospel. They both exist, and they're both absolutely true. Don't ignore one over the other, because when you do, it takes you to bad places. There are churches that will tell you, God never chooses. And there are churches that will tell you, God chooses absolutely everything, and we have no choice in the matter. I'm telling you that both are wrong. I'm telling you that God chooses, and we decide how we respond to the gospel based on something else that is underpinning us as individual human beings. I don't know what that is. So, with that said, this is a passage that's quoted from the Old Testament. It's Malachi chapter 1, the last book in that Old Testament. Malachi chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. We're going to get a little context with it, though. The oracle of the word of God of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. So Malachi is arguing, and we're going to see here that he argues the same way Paul argues in Romans. And Paul does not take this out of context at all. God is speaking through Malachi to the Israelites. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I love Jacob. So it's the same sort of situation. The Jews, the ethnic Jews, were saying, God's not loving us. God lied to us by saying he's going to save us here in the New Testament. And so that's the the argument that's being made here back in Malachi. How has God loved us? Right? I... He clearly hasn't blessed us, these folks are saying, based upon their condition and situation. Then God's retort was, was not Esau Jacob's brother? Yet I love Jacob. Jacob was no more deserving than Esau. He didn't do anything to deserve God's love any more or any differently than Esau did. And that's the point that's being made here as well as in Romans. After all, Esau was the eldest. Yet God chose Jacob. Verse 3. But I have hated Esau. I have made his mountains a desolation and appointed his inheritance for the jackals of the wilderness. Malachi explains to the Israelites that God hated Esau. I'm not going to make an attempt to water that passage down to make you feel warm and fuzzy inside. Not going to do it. The translation is the translation. It's sone, which means to hate or to have scorn for. You might say, well, God doesn't hate. And I will ask you about God's relationship with sin and evilness. What is God's relationship with sin and evil? If there's any way that God can hate, it is sin. It is evilness. It is disobedience. So we're going to come back to that. Before we get to that, I want you to look at verse 4. Though Edom says, Edom comes from Edomites, direct descendants of Esau. So we're still dealing with Esau. We have been beaten down, but we will return and build up the ruins Thus says the Lord of hosts, They may build, but I will tear down. And men will call them the wicked territory, and the people toward whom the Lord is indignant forever. 
So what is men going to call, or was men going to call the Edomite nation? Wicked. Wicked. They were evil. They were full of sin. They were disobedient. So I want us to go back up to God's choice. I'm saying the hate and disdain for Esau wasn't at the beginning. He merely passed over Esau. He passed over Esau and chose Jacob, who, by the way, go back and read between the two. Jacob was the more honorary of the two, right? He lied to his dad. He stole his brother's birthright. So don't think that being a good person is going to gain you anything in the eyes of God. He chose the bad one, ironically speaking. So he skipped over and chose Jacob, and then as a result of that, Esau became evil. Esau was directly responsible for his evilness. So God's hatred or despise for Esau was passive in the beginning in that he skipped over him, but then it became active whenever Esau became the evil person and evil group of people later on. God hates sin. He hates evilness. That is the basis and foundation of his hatred toward Esau. It was passive in the beginning and became active after Esau and the evil Edomites became evil people. We look at verse 5. Your eyes will see this and you will say, The Lord be magnified beyond the border of Israel. So even though... The Israelites believed God didn't love them. God didn't love them. He makes a beautiful point. Here's a look at the Edomites. Look at Esau. Look at their land. I've destroyed and annihilated their land. You were no better off than they were. What makes you think that you were more deserving than them? Because you didn't do anything to deserve it. You deserved nothing but the same thing that they got. And yet you say, I don't love you. I said this this morning in Sunday school. And you guys have heard me say it many times. The feeling of deserving something permeates our society. It does. And that makes it so difficult for us to understand this passage. Because we think in our minds that both Esau and Jacob deserve everything. Right? It's our culture. It's it's the way we live. And I'm not saying it's bad, as you've heard me say. I love this land. It's the greatest land that's ever existed. And, And I love our nation. But being a part of this culture makes this passage almost impossible for us to be able to understand. Because we want to go back and we want to blame God. God, you should have chose Esau too. But before we go there, Remember that we don't have that seat on that throne. And we're going to see that explained to us very vividly in the next few weeks. I caution us. Don't push God out of the throne and think that we can do a better job by by sitting on it. He's on that for a reason. I can't tell you why he chose Jacob over Esau other than that's his plan. I can't tell you why some people are and some people aren't, only that that's his plan. Who am I to tell the potter that they don't form the clay correctly? I can't. I can't. 
because He is God and, and I am not. I just trust that He knows what He's doing. I'm not going to find fault. And we're going to see that in the coming weeks. We're going to see just exactly what I'm saying. We're going to see Paul deal with that and talk about that. John Calvin said, "Why, if we want to fault God for this, why do we not fault God for creating a mule instead of a human? After all, he is the one that forms out of the same lump of clay, but yet the mule is going to live a life of being out in the field grazing and doing hard labor and dying at a relatively young age. And that's going to be it. There is no eternity for that mule. And as opposed to that, he creates humans who have an eternal soul and can live such a better... Why not create all humans? Don't know. Can't answer that. But I know someone else that's got way brighter mind than me is in charge of that. And so part of the faith that God gives us is the ability to accept it, to hold it in tension, and to understand that it's God's plan. And it's going to help me better understand whenever they just refuse to believe. It's going to help me better trust that God's in charge of this, not Scott. And that his ways aren't my ways. And just as his thoughts are higher than my thoughts, so too are his ways. And so that's what I ask you to do this morning. Don't find fault. Just try to understand that it is above us. But it is the way that God works. It's clear from this passage in the Bible and a whole lot more throughout the Bible. God is sovereign in our salvation Yet our eternity depends upon our response to the gospel. Amen? Let us pray. Most gracious God, Lord, we thank you for this passage and the ability for us to see behind the scenes into your sovereign choice. And yet it's so difficult for us to understand. It's so difficult for us to see the fairness behind it, Lord. Help us to just accept it. Help us to love you and understand that you have blessed us beyond what we deserve. And that in reality, we all deserve eternal damnation. And that we just accept that blessing and glorify you for that blessing and trust all these matters unto you. Father, help us to continue to wrestle with this. But help us to never try to transplant you with ourselves. Because you are God and you deserve the glory. And we are not. And may you be glorified through this passage throughout all the land. For it is in Christ's precious name we pray. Amen.